Hello everyone. Welcome to Sunday Night Bible Fellowship. It's always a joy to have you join us here as we continue our study in the book of Luke. And today we are starting a new chapter. And that new chapter is chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles and you would like to turn there, you can. The text will also be up on the screen. Luke chapter 20, we will be looking at verses 1 through 8. I put a title on this of, By What Authority? This will be the last class that we will have this year, as we will now break for Christmas and New Year's, and come back again on January 7th, 2024. So this will again be the last class we will have, and looking forward to next year getting back at it again as we continue our study in Luke, and Lord willing, finishing the book of Luke this year, perhaps by June 1st. So we'll see how things shake out. There's a lot of, a lot of truth, a lot of events, a lot of issues that we will need to address as we go through these last five chapters. But they will be exciting chapters, chapters that deal with the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ, his trial, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So we have all of that to cover, and it is going to be amazing as we work our way through it and see all of the things that God has for us as we study together. So want to wish all of you, being this is our last time, a Merry Christmas and a Blessed New Year as we head into 2024. This has been a wonderful year, wonderful year of studying and learning and hopefully applying it to our lives. So Without any more delay, let's take a look at Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. A lot of commentaries ignore this part. They think, well, there isn't much being said on this. Actually, this is an extremely important subject that is being addressed here when we're talking about authority. And, of course, the Lord Jesus gets questioned for his authority But it is so interesting what he does in turning this around. So, verse 1 says, On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. So this is probably Tuesday. We consider that he, perhaps, if you want to consider Sunday as Palm Sunday, Monday he is overturning the tables, and now Tuesday he is right here. He is preaching the gospel in the temple, and this is when this all takes place. Friday's coming. Friday is Passover. Friday is the day when the crucifixion will take place. Jesus being the Passover lamb will be the one who will take away the sin of the world, provide himself as a sacrificial lamb. For all those who believe and put their trust in him, they receive eternal life and the forgiveness of their sin. It says on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple, 
So he's back in the temple again. You remember the last time we took a look at the fact that in the court of the Gentiles, which surrounds the temple proper area, in the court of the Gentiles, Jesus came in, saw all the corruption that was taking place, all of the extortion, all of the pressurizing people through manipulative ways to discard their own animals and to purchase those animals from those who were running the court of the Gentiles area, that area where business took place. Jesus comes in, sees all of this in a, a massive display of strength. He goes and he overturns those tables. These are tables that would be set up in order to serve two million Jews. So you know there's got to be a lot of tables. It's not that there were just a couple of tables there. There were tables all over the place. And this created, of course, chaos as he came in, overturned the tables. If they were sitting on chairs and stools, those would be overturned as well. Money, coins flew everywhere. Animals were let go. He drove all of the money changers and all of the business people out of the temple area. And so now he is back in again, and he is, as it says here, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. So Jesus is back in there, teaching and preaching the gospel. Probably all over the court he's teaching it, which is what rabbis did. When there was teaching that took place in the court of the Gentiles, they would usually move from place to place. If you were going to teach throughout the day, you would maybe move from the colonnades up to the steps leading up to the temple proper. You would stand someplace in the court of the Gentiles, form a group and teach. Uh, and you might teach on a particular thing, and then you might walk to some other place. So Jesus might be at one point, he is going to teach on the Old Testament and the fact of the Messiah and the sacrificial lamb and what the entire Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to, which was to him. He might do that in one place. He might move to another place. He might talk about hypocrisy. He might talk about a, a tradition. And then he might move on. He might talk to another place. In another place, talk about the system of works. Works won't get you to heaven. He, in another place, might talk about the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, those groups that were all a part of the religious establishment of the day. He might expose them and talk about them. So there, when we're talking about here him teaching and preaching the gospel in the temple, we're talking about him moving from place to place, teaching on different subjects, all related to the gospel itself in order so that the people could understand what was involved in the gospel. On the next slide, I've got a, um, a picture of the temple area, so you can kind of see this in your mind. You'll see the wall that goes around this entire area. You've got uh, the Court of the Gentiles, which is the big space on the left side and on the right side. This is where the tables would have been set up. This is where he would have overturned them and all that, that took place. So he is in this area. You can see the colonnades 
straightforward on the right. He could go inside of those, which was typical, get out of the sun and teach in there and come out and teach at various places all around the court of the Gentiles. Wherever he went, there was a gathering. There were hundreds, thousands following him, so uh, it would make sense that uh, he would have a quick group to be able to teach and preach to the gospel. So it says at the end of verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. So here they come again, the leaders of the perverse man-made system of self-righteousness. They just can't let it alone. They just have to keep coming after him and in some way try to get him to slip up and then put the cuffs on him, take him away, and kill him. That was their goal. It was a fine line that they were walking because they had the people on the one side. They did not want to upset them, or it could be curtains for them, so they had to keep that in mind. They just tried to work their way through in some way, and that was their problem. They couldn't, they never could trap him. They always asked him questions, whatever. He always had answers or questions back, and their mouths were closed. So these are the leaders, these are the chief priests here, as it says, and the scribes with the elders confronted him. So you've got an entire hierarchy of people within the religious system of that day. You've got the chief priests there at the top. You've got the scribes. These are the ones who were lawyers. They were people that, who interpreted the law for the people. And so you had them, you had the Sanhedrin. This in all likelihood is the Sanhedrin. The chief priests here, scribes, elders, these are ones that all made up the Sanhedrin. Might not be the whole group, but you got some from that group. That ruling group, we would compare it today to our Supreme Court. And that's who was involved here. And they were always, always there, always checking out Jesus. What was he saying? What was he doing? Jesus is such a threat to their system that they just can't leave him alone until he is dead. That's their goal. They are hounding him. They will not be satisfied until they put him to death. Now, what's interesting, I put a verse at the bottom here, John 10, 18. Jesus talks about where he gets his authority from, and he says in verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down. He's talking about his own life. No one has taken it away from me. In other words, no one can take Jesus's life away from him, but he will voluntarily lay it down on my own initiative, he says. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So, for instance, when we looked at when he at the beginning of his ministry, the Galilean ministry up by Galilee, when he was in Nazareth, in the synagogue, said some things that really inflamed him. They took him out to throw him off a cliff, but he was able to slither his way through the crowd and to escape. And he did that several times. 
He was able to escape, get away from them, and he was able to do that. You say, why couldn't they get all? Well, I think that was kind of a miraculous thing that he was just able to do that. And that's because it wasn't his time yet. And so no one can take his life away from him unless he voluntarily gives up and lays it down, which he will do as we get to the crucifixion. He will give himself over, he will be crucified, and he will give himself up. But he says here very plainly, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Both I have. So don't think that Jesus is ever going to be a victim or that something's going to happen to him which is going to in some way mess up the timing of this whole thing, it won't happen. All right? Verse 2. So what do these guys say? Well, they spoke saying to him, Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? The word uh, that's used here for authority is the Greek word exousia, It's a word which means jurisdiction, it means right, it means authority. In other words, who has given you the right or the jurisdiction to do these things? So authority to them was a big thing. In their system, authority was very, very important. Chief priests, priests, just think about this system that they had going. You got the chief priests, the priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the rabbis. This is this complex religion that has all these different facets to it. And you did nothing in that group unless you were given the authority to do it by someone else. In other words, it was a closed system. And it was a system that was watched very closely so that nothing could penetrate it. And the way you did that is you never had somebody that just went off by themselves independently and did something. They always would need to refer back to, uh, quote a rabbi or uh, whatever. That's why uh, they were constantly quoting others. So they would, in their conversations would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, or Rabbi so-and-so said that, or they would quote somebody, a Pharisee, or somebody from the Sanhedrin, or a priest, chief priest, whatever. They were always quoting somebody who had authority to say what they were saying, what they were saying, and, and as a result, what you were doing. And so you always had to have that. So here's Jesus. Jesus comes along, comes into the world. Here's this big monstrosity of a religious system that's existing. It's cranking it out. It's piling burdens on people. It's creating laws and details, minutia, way beyond what the scripture teaches. It's all a big system of works. Here comes Jesus. He's on the outside. He sees all of this, and he begins teaching and preaching and attacking it and condemning it and so on. And they're looking at him thinking, 
Who in the world are you to say this about us? What authority do you have to be able to criticize us, to attack us for what we're doing? Because as I said, you had no authority in and of yourself. They looked at Jesus that way. He had no authority in and of himself. What claim can you make to having any authority to do the things that you're doing? So they lived in a closed system. And it is into that world, as I just said, that Jesus came. Jesus is an outsider, and he attacks their system, and he exposes it, and that's the problem that they're having with him. Is Not only does he come and disagree with what they're doing, but he actually exposes it. And that's what is all the consternation about. Now, when it says here, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, these things here, Specifically, they're referring to the overturning the tables of corruption, the thing that just happened. This just happened, and Jesus is preaching and teaching. These guys come along, and they say, you got to tell us, by what authority are you, are you doing these things? Meaning, what authority did you have to come in here to overturn all these tables, to chase all these money changers and so on out of here? And you see... They were taking in hordes of money. I mean, they were charging. Well, if you bought a pigeon or a lamb or whatever outside of the temple, it would cost you so much. If you bought it inside the temple, you would pay 20 times more. I mean, they were just robbing the people. They were called a den of thieves, a den of robbers. So what Jesus was doing by when he came in there and cleaned out the temple, what he was doing is he's hitting them right in their pocketbook. You see, money is always a factor in false religion. It doesn't matter where it is, whether it's Hare Krishna walking through airports selling their little incense sticks or whatever it might be for money. There's always money involved. There's always people at the top that are taking the money or are living a lavish lifestyle. It doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Mormons, Roman Catholics, it does not matter. It all goes down the same vein. And when you disrupt that in some way, and you affect their income and what they're taking in, they're going to come after you. And they came after Jesus, and that's what's happening here. So if Jesus just came and said some things attacking their system, they could dismiss it. But the problem that they've got here is with the miracles that Jesus performed. I mean, Jesus has raised the dead. Jesus has healed lepers. He has given sight to the blind. He has made the lame walk. He caused those with hemorrhages to heal. And besides all those miracles that he performed, he has borne witness to the fulfillment of the scriptures of the Old Testament. And besides that, John the Baptist has pointed to him and said, he's the Messiah. And you see, it's one thing to attack their system. It's another thing that the person that's attacking it isn't just using some verbiage, but he's backing it up by all these miracles, all these thousands and thousands of healings and miracles that he performed in Israel. So how are you going to deal with that? And that was their problem. And you see, that always appealed to the people because the people witnessed this. They saw the joy on the people that were being healed or the demons that were being cast out. 
and so on. They saw that and it won the people over, the hearts of the people over. And you see, that was the problem that the Pharisees had. They couldn't just dismiss it and say to the people, he's attacking our system, our religion, and it's fully wrong and we're going to put him to death. No, they couldn't just go and do that because of the simple fact that he is, he has the power and he is doing all these miracles. So what they're really saying to Jesus is, as I said before, who do you think you are? I mean, who are, who are you to come in and disrupt our religion and what we're doing? I mean, this is ours. And you're coming along and you're knocking it. And we don't believe you have authority to do that. So we're asking you, you need to tell us who is the one who gave you this authority. And of course, this is a trap, right? If Jesus says, well, God was the one that gave me the authority, well, that's blasphemy to them. That he is claiming that God is the one, God who is his father, is the one who's doing that. So they're going to consider that blasphemy. And for that, Jesus needs to be killed. He needs to be stoned. If he says, man is the one who gave him the authority, well, then he discredits his own messiahship. If it's man that's involved here, if he has no authority from God, and it's simply man that is saying you have authority, well, then he is no longer the messiah. He is no longer God. So they think we got him trapped. How is he ever going to get out of this? Whatever he says, we got him, right? All right, verse 3. Well, let me just put a couple of verses up here before we move to verse 3. John five nineteen to 23. Therefore Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So you see, he's saying, I get my total authority from God himself. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So you see the interplay throughout those verses between the Father and the Son. I mean, they're just, they're so closely tied together. That's why John 10, 9, Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9, I and the Father are one. So you see one, you see Jesus, you see the Father. You see the Father, you see Jesus. They are totally knit together. And the Son is not doing anything unless the Father gives him the authority to do it. You see it again in Matthew 28, 18 and 19. You're familiar with this. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus is saying authority has been given to him by God the Father in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So there's a claim to authority, and the authority is that which comes 
from above. It comes from heaven. Okay, on to verse 3. Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. All right, so to answer this question that they asked Jesus, Jesus turns around and he asks them a question. And that's a typical way in Jewish culture to answer a question. And that is, you don't directly answer it, but instead you turn around and you ask a question, which if you answer it, it'll answer the first question. That's what Jesus is doing here. You know, there are many ways Jesus could have answered it. I mean, he could have answered it sarcastically. He could have gone right down the line, said all kinds of things that would have proven his point. But he didn't do that. And his answer is absolute genius, what he's doing here. I mean, um, I wouldn't have thought of it. And it takes somebody like the Son of God to think about this because he is going to totally turn the tables on them. They think they got him trapped. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus does by asking that question. And the question is, in verse 4, was the baptism of John from heaven or was it from men? They're all familiar with the baptism of John. And so, no question there as to what this meant. And, And what Jesus really is saying here is, look, you flunked the first test on authority. So why ask it again? The first test was with John the Baptist. So Jesus effectively ties himself to John here. And by doing that, they're either going to have to say that they are both from God or they are from men. Now, John's baptism was for repentance, resulting in the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus is saying, you rejected it. Look at Matthew 3, 5 to 7. Then Jerusalem was going out to him. This is going out to John the Baptist. You'll remember it. Jordan River, he's down there. He's baptizing. It's a baptism of repentance. John has come out of the wilderness. He's down there. He's preaching. He is calling people to repentance. He's calling them to be baptized and through their repentance receive forgiveness of sin. And so all of Judea and all the district around Jordan were going out to see him. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now notice verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, John said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now the Pharisees came down, the Sadducees came down, they only came down to observe. They were not participants. They were not the ones that got into the water and were baptized and repented of their sin, confessed their sin, and so on. John sees them standing there, being the observers, and he calls them what they are. He calls them a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So they had opportunity. John is is later going to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's going to pronounce that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Here he comes. And, of course, Jesus came into the water and John baptized him. Okay, verse 5. They reasoned among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, if we say that John's baptism was from heaven, 
Then Jesus is going to say, well, why did you not believe in him? See, and they're exactly right. You know, was John's baptism from God or was it a man-made invention? That's the decision they've got to decide. If they say it was from God, then they have incriminated themselves for not repenting and being baptized. So they can't go down that road because right away, if you say John the Baptist, what he was doing, that was from God, well then why didn't you go into the waters of baptism? Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you confess so that you received forgiveness of sin? You're claiming to be the big spiritual ones in Israel. You're claiming to be the ones who have the right religion. And if John comes along and he is baptizing and he is from God, and you say he's from God, then you were disobedient to God by not going down there and getting baptized. See what Jesus is doing here? Uh, this is, there, there's no way they can get around this. Verse 6, they're reasoning to themselves. They're saying, but if we say it's from men, that John's baptism was from men, it was not from God, then all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet, that he was a prophet from God. And so we can't say that John was just merely from men because that's not what the crowd believes. And of course, they're, as I said earlier, they're concerned about what the crowd believes. They, they have a lot of power. So if they say it was from men, they will bring the wrath of the people upon them because the people believe that John was a prophet sent by God. If you reject the prophet, you reject God and you will be stoned. What are they going to do? They can't say it's from God because they were disobedient then. They can't say it was from men because if they say it's from men, then the people are going to come after them and stone them because they are not attributing to John the fact that he is a true prophet sent from God, which is what the people believed. So they got a real problem on their hands. So, verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Isn't that interesting? I think this is, and, and, and by doing that, oh, they didn't get away scot-free on this thing. We'll see it here. So you see, so this puts them on the horns of a dilemma. I mean, what are they going to do? How are they going to get around this? Either way, it's going to hurt them. So they had to be real careful going down that road and where it could end up. You see, and the logical thing, and perhaps the people were thinking this in their minds as they respond to Jesus and say, we don't know where it came from. And maybe there's some people that said it out loud, I don't know, but at least in their minds they could be thinking, what do you mean you don't know? You guys are the head honchos and you don't know? Give me a break. See, this really exposed them. And the people should be furious. People should be saying, you know, we are supposed to trust you and your back-breaking religion of laws and rules for eternal life, and you can't even come up with the answer to a simple question? Really? Really? You should be able to answer this. Where did John's ministry come from? 
Where did his baptism, the fact that he was baptized, where did it come from? You can't answer that. See, they walked right into the trap that Jesus set. See, the fact of the matter is that man-made religion has no answers to the simple questions of life. And I'm talking about simple questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? I've asked that question to so many, so many people and, and students on university campuses. And I've sat down with them and they, you know, claim to be caught up in this religion, that religion, whatever. And I just say, let's just stop a minute. And let me ask you three questions. Can you tell me who I am? Can you tell me where did I come from? And can you tell me where I'm going? And they'll start stammering around and, you know, well, and then, you know, they try and get into some big, huge philosophical explanation. And they just tie themselves up in knots in their minds in trying to explain things. And I like to say, you know what? The Bible is, is very simple and it has simple answers to those questions. It'll tell you exactly who you are. It'll tell you your condition, the problem that you're facing because of sin that is a part of your life, that has infiltrated your life. It'll tell you, the Bible will tell you exactly where you came from, and it'll tell you exactly where you are going. And there's no fumbling around, and there's no big philosophical arguments or philosophical ways of thinking to try and work your way around those things. You know, and so many people, people that are caught up in all kinds of religions that are filled with rules and regulations and this needs to be done and that needs to be done and so on and so forth. And, and, and you get right down to simple questions and, and they just can't answer or they come up with things that are so convoluted and so complicated. And it's not complicated. It's just very simple. All it is. So in verse 8 then, Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus is saying, if you can't solve the issue you have with John, you will never solve the issue you have with me. See, John was a fork in the road to the Jewish leaders. He proclaimed Jesus was the Messiah. If he was from God, then Jesus was the Messiah, and you need to bow down and submit to him. Well, they're not going to do that. And they're not going to bow down and submit to the Messiah, someone who has trashed their religious system. And you see, Jesus, Jesus didn't even have to answer their question because their question had been answered by themselves. By themselves, by working their way through the whole John the Baptist baptism of repentance and so on, and he came from God and he pointed to the Messiah and so on. It's all self-evident that Jesus is doing what he's doing by the authority given to him by God the Father. Simple as that. All right, let's go to application. I want to spend a little bit of time on application because I think it is, um, it's really important for us to think through what is final authority? And I start with number one, uh, who is the final authority over your life? What is, who is the final authority? What is the final authority over your life? 
For some people, it's experience. For some people, they say, and we're even talking about Christians here, people will say, well, you know, I've had these experiences, and so therefore these experiences dictate how I'll make decisions in the future based upon my experience that I've had. Well, guess what? That's wrong. Bible never teaches that we're to rely upon experience. I don't care how valid you might think they are. Read Deuteronomy chapter 13. There are experiences that are talked about there that are prophesied that come true. And in that passage, the author says, you can't even rely on those things. Just forget about experiences and that they have any kind of final authority. They do not. What you need to do is you need to cling to the word of God. Some people rely upon and a final authority in their life is their feelings. Well, I don't know what to do, and I don't know what decision to make or whatever. You know, I'm just going to go by my feelings. I'm going to go by my, my gut feeling in this whole thing. Is that reliable? See, it's no more reliable than experience. Because experience and feelings vary from person to person. And there's no consistency, and there is no truth in that that you can rely on as you live your life. Or how about your wisdom? You say, well, I just, I just rely on my wisdom when I get into those areas when I need to make a decision. You can't rely upon your own wisdom. Your wisdom is flawed. Your feelings are flawed. As I said before, I've never met a feeling that I could trust. Your experience is flawed. Only reliable thing for you in your life that you can rely upon is the Word of God. Period. It's the only thing that's consistent. It's the only thing that contains total truth, unadulterated, unvarnished truth. Every single day, every moment of the day, you could rely on. That's your final authority. When you say, I'm confronted with this and I don't know what to do, where are you going to go? You're going to go to the Word of God. You're going to research it and you're going to discover the truths that are contained in there that'll tell you how to face the issue you're facing. Number two, who is the final authority over your church? You can take a look at a lot of churches. They've got all kinds of authorities within the church. Tradition, to many churches, is, is, is the final authority. Well, this is the way we've always done it. This is what's been passed down to us. So therefore, we're going to rely upon it over anything else over scripture. It's amazing to me. You can talk to people. These are, these are Christians. These are believers. And you can talk to them about something that they're believing that is not based on the word of God. And they, they say, yeah, but, but this is our tradition. Well, that's exactly what the Pharisees said. They were caught up in all their traditions. And it was all, it all trumped the Word of God, it all was the most final authority over everything. Tradition always puts itself under the Word of God and what the Word of God says about that tradition. Or a particular document. Some people, they take the Westminster Confession of 1646 and they hold to that. That's our document. And they quote the Westminster Confession more than they do the Bible. And when you have a question, they don't go to the Bible, they go to the Westminster Confession and they say, let's see, what does this say about it? Listen, the Westminster Confession 
and the 16, I think it's the 1689, it's the 1689 Baptist Confession. A lot of people go back, they use that. Now, listen, those documents have some great truths in them, and a lot of it's based on Scripture. That's good, but neither one of those documents are inspired. There's only one book that's inspired, and it's the Word of God itself. And all documents that there might be, they all have to submit themselves to the Word of God. And there might be parts of it that are not right and not true. And if the Word of God shows that it's not right and not true, then you should not be following it. Some people say, well, in the church, the final authority is the pastor. Well, the pastor only has authority as much as he is clinging to the Word of God and obeying it and following it and teaching it and preaching it to the people. He has no authority in and of himself. Zero. The book that he holds in his hand, the book that he opens up on Sundays and any other time when he's teaching the Bible or when the people are gathered together, it's in that book that there is final authority. And it's that final authority that he needs to appeal to when he is leading the people. Board of Elders, same way. Some people say, well, our, the authority in our church is the Board of Elders, Board of Deacons, the General Council. They come up with all kinds of names that have been established and so on. Look, all of those groups, they all have to bend the knee to the Word of God. They in themselves have no authority. There's nobody that sits on those boards that can claim some kind of infallibility when they speak. Constantly, they need to be going back to the Word of God. I've been in business meetings, and, you know, there's a dispute over something, what they're going to do in the church or whatever. And I'm just waiting, and I'm thinking, is there somebody? I'm just there as an outsider. Is there somebody here that is going to take out the Bible and say, well, here, I want to just read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 15, because I think this will shed some real light on this. You see, it's always an appeal to the Word of God. The Word of God is the final authority over it all. I don't care how many brilliant men, businessmen, whatever you have together on a board, or the pastor himself, or whatever, I don't care, he might have more degrees than a thermometer, it does not make any difference. Everyone on this earth, every document, every tradition, all put themselves under the final authority of the Word. But there are people that don't even appeal to the Word. We've got denominations that have gone totally south. All kinds of things that are happening within denominations. And you see, these are people that have not put themselves under the authority of the Word. That's why it's so wonderful on Sundays to see people carrying Bibles. What they are carrying in their hands is the authority in the church. That's the authority. The authority of their lives and the authority of the church is contained in that book. They're carrying around the authority. And what they're saying by bringing that Bible and coming, what they're saying by that is, here it is. Here's the authority that we go by here, that we live by. All right, number three. Generally, the only way to expose a false religious system is with the Word of God. It may have to come from the outside of the systems. Many times it has to come from the outside because the people inside are too blind to see 
the error of their ways. The Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Sanhedrin, Zealots, the whole group, the whole religious structure was such a closed group. They had all the safeguards up to not allow anything to penetrate into it. And they were all blinded. You take somebody from the outside. It took the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this earth. It took him coming and standing on the outside and telling the people, telling the world, this is a false religion. Do not follow it. If you are in it, get out. But it takes somebody from the outside. Now, occasionally, on a rare occasion, it might happen from within. For instance, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a monk. Martin Luther began studying Romans passages where he began to see what justification was and how we are justified. And it's not by works, it's by faith. And that righteousness is imputed to us, not our own righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. And so he broke out of that religious system, Roman Catholicism. He broke out of it, but that's rare. That's rare. Usually takes somebody from the outside. Finally, number four. Usually false religious systems have built-in safeguards to prevent exposure to the truth. Now, they don't think it's truth. They thought what Jesus was teaching was false, but they had built-in safeguards. And those who were standing on the outside of the system, and Jesus was there, and they were following with Jesus or whatever, they were there, and they just had to make sure that he no longer penetrated, he no longer talked about them, and so they were there to put him to death. That was their mission. Because they came to the realization, this guy is not going to be quiet. We're not going to be able to straighten out this guy. All we can do is silence this guy. And he is a huge threat to us, and we can't allow our system to go down the drain because of this guy. So they had these safeguards, they had these people, they had the Sanhedrin, they had these representatives, these people that they sent out wherever Jesus was. And they were constantly confronting him and trying to trap him because they had to protect their religious system. No one questioned, nobody looked at it and said, wow, maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe, what if we're wrong? You take somebody like Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. Did he just come to this by himself? No, he had to be struck down in order to see the truth. That's many times what will happen. So this is a very, very important section of Scripture because authority is very, very important. Not only in the life of Christ and the fact that he had the authority to do and to say the things that he said, but in application to us, we need to think through what's the final authority in our lives? What's the final authority in our churches? Are we constantly appealing to that authority, the Word of God, when we have decisions that we have to make, when we have issues that we face? Are we facing them with the Word of God, or are we coming at it with something just on our own, something for us to think through? Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this day. We're grateful for this passage of Scripture. 
in a day and age where people are thinking in postmodern terms, there is no truth, there is no absolute truth. Authority becomes something that no one can grasp anymore, because without truth, who can possibly have authority? But we do realize that there is an authority, and there is truth, and that's contained in your word. And so we're grateful and thankful for the Bible that's been given to us. We're grateful and thankful that this passage teaches us that our authority comes from you, and it is all contained in your word, everything that we need to live godly lives in this world. So thank you that we've been able to work our way through this and for the application to our lives. For we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. Amen.